Jerry, look who's here. Ah, oh, Lloyd. Hi, Jerry. Got some more of that gum. Oh, the gum. Yeah. Well, let's all enjoy a chew, huh? Now, see, this is what the holidays are all about. Three buddies sitting around chewing gum, huh? Well, I don't want to be a secondary character. Hello, Ivan. Hello, Stephen. And hello to you, our listeners. Welcome to another episode of But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. We're a Seinfeld podcast out of Melbourne, Australia. And every week we take a random episode of Seinfeld and examine the secondary characters from it. And this week we're doing a, I would say, classic episode from season seven, The Gum. Yeah, episode 10 of that season. And it rounds out uh, the year quite well because this is the last episode that we have reviewed, as well as the characters, where it's actually set at Christmas time. So I was looking everywhere for Christmas episodes that we may not have have done steve i was like oh geez we've done the red dot last year for our festivus special we did you know a couple others we did the strike two years before you know for our first festivus special and we've done other christmas ones in between there's about i think half a dozen christmas episodes all up on the show and uh, yeah i looked and i was like the gum that's the last one that's set around christmas and we haven't done it so that's part of our third and final festivus special because we are wrapping up the series at the end of the year i mean at the start of next year i mean yeah, in March next year. Yeah, and there's not yeah. a lot to let the viewers know that it is a Christmas episode. There's a couple of references to the holidays and uh, a few other things, but it's not really a Christmas-themed episode. It's just a, a storyline that happens to be around Christmas. Yeah, so it actually worked out because I thought, oh, no, it'd be weird if we had a festivist special with no episodes set around that time. But uh, luckily, we grabbed that one out of our hats. Yeah, it worked out very, very well. If you want to talk to us about Christmas, you can email us, peoplebasspodcast at gmail.com. You can say hello on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Reddit. Uh, you can listen to all of our previous episodes on your podcast app of choice. And if you want to rate us or review us, that would be amazing. It really helps us out. And finally, you can support us financially as well. Yes, with one-off payments on PayPal, or you can go to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C. And you can donate for $2 or so US a month, and you get bonus podcasts. Curbcast and Season 11, as well as some other goodies, including this episode earlier than everyone else. So you got an early Christmas present if you sign up. That's right. And uh, we also run the biggest Seinfeld group, uh, Seinfeld community, I should say, uh, on the internet. It's a Facebook group called Seinfeldisms. Uh, check it out. We're about 102,000 members. Uh, lots of uh, awesome, fun Seinfeld stuff going on and uh, lots of cool things coming up in the new year. So uh, check it out. Indeed. Anyway, Stephen, speaking of Seinfeldisms, do you have any uh, Christmas or Festivus related isms that have happened to you? you these days or you know, in the last week or so? No, no uh, Festivus or Christmas Seinfeldisms, but uh, a couple of pretty standard ones at this point. Uh, I was watching Family Guy through the week and they happened to mention Seinfeld. Can't recall which episode, but uh, did make a mental note. And uh, another one is that I was listening to a podcast. Again, didn't write down <laughs> which one, but just made a mental note that some podcast somewhere at some point referred to Seinfeld. What about you? Uh, same as you. So like I listened to a podcast the other week and they mentioned Seinfeld. I forgot the context. I forgot the name. Just just like you and uh, yeah, they mentioned Seinfeld. So I think it was just in passing somehow. Oh, actually, it might have been the um, the Weekly Planet. I think um, the pop culture podcast. I think they mentioned Seinfeld in something because I, I mentioned the Weekly Planet. I think like a month ago, and they were talking about like the worst series finales, and Seinfeld of you know popped up. But yeah, for some reason they talked about Seinfeld in some context, and uh, yeah, that was it. It was like 
couple of seconds. Yeah, Forgot Seinfeld. which episode it was. Yeah, Seinfeld is commonly referred to. So it's uh, it's you know if you watch enough TV or listen to enough podcasts in a week, uh, there's a good chance you'll hear some sort of reference to Seinfeld. Uh, as mm. you know, as we've just uh, demonstrated, <laughs> Seinfeld news for the week. Bit of a slim news week like last week, but I did manage to find a couple of Seinfeld related news pieces, uh, not specifically to do with Seinfeld. The first one being a uh, second article. Uh, it was put out by the uh, LA Times, and that was with Cassie David, uh, Larry David's daughter. So we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that she's putting out a book next year. Um, it's called No One Asked For This. And it's basically a series of essays and stories, I guess, anecdotes of her life up until this point. And uh, it's written in the style of Larry David. Um, you know, so quite weird, probably quite cynical. Um, we did talk about mm. the first essay um, that was mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was called Too Full to Fuck, I think it was called. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's about how uh, she would go on dates and she'd always feel anxious about eating too much because she loves food, but she didn't want to eat so much that she couldn't have sex with her date so it was always a bit of a bit of a a choice she had to make this one the the article in the la times i mentioned cassie talks about um her breakup with comedian pete davidson who was actually quite unknown before they started going out and then her being his girlfriend kind of raised his profile and then he went out with ariana grande and that just sort of exploded his profile anyway he broke up with her basically to be with ariana grande she took it pretty hard and uh, in the article she talks about how she flew to a uh to a sister's graduation after the breakup and uh larry was there obviously and uh, being a fresh breakup she was pretty upset and uh, Larry was comforting her for the trip and at the end of the trip he basically just told her to snap out of it and get over it basically so he was comforting wow. to a certain point and then the typical kind of asshole Larry David that we see in Curb Your Enthusiasms kicked in and just told her to cut it out so there you go goodness yeah, full on so. anyway a bit of gossip a bit of uh, TMZ yeah I guess so it's sort of celebrity-ish um, it's more about how Larry David you know uh, comforted or didn't comfort his daughter more so than the breakup hmm. but um, I think we t- when we talked about just a, a, a side point when we talked about that uh, article a couple of weeks ago the too full to fuck essay at first i was like a bit yeah i don't think i'd be interested in this book but the more i hear about it you know this article and the first article i think i'll you know at least give it a read or maybe if there's like a teaser copy or something or an audiobook that's a couple of bucks i'd actually uh, give it a listen you know it might be worthwhile yeah well you might get something out of it because like with with cassie she reminds me of like you know she's definitely like her father but it'd be like if larry david was like in her mid-20s and you know and a woman <laughs> you know that be like Larry David. Yeah, it's like millennial, <laughs> millennial Larry David, a young Larry yeah. David dealing with modern day problems, but still with the sort of attitude of Larry David, which is you know of another time in a lot of ways. So yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's something like that. Well, well, that'd be awesome if like Cassie one day you know wanted to get more into acting, and then like say her dad got really old or, or passed, and then they did like a reboot of Curb, and then Cassie was like Larry. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm a fan of any sort of cynical asshole character. It's kind of my uh, go-to. So yeah, but uh, there aren't many characters that are women that are like that so i think it'd be a nice take mm. yeah it would be a good take and you know she'd be just like her dad but you know like a, a semi-fictionalized version of uh, cassie in real life yeah 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 so, <laughs> fun uh, yeah obviously um some more news have come out about the book i think it comes out in february or march next year um but if any other articles come out or any other interviews um that talk about what's going to be in the book i'll mention it on seinfeld news second bit of news for the week um and it would be pretty cool if it does actually happen uh julia louis dreyfus uh, a little while ago it actually happened about three or four weeks ago but i did miss it and uh picking it up this week she spoke to a publication called The New Abnormal. I believe they're like a pop culture website. Uh, Oh, sorry. They're a podcast from The Daily Beast, which is a pretty well-known podcast network. Yep. She talked about, uh, I didn't catch the host of the podcast, but with that host, she talked about Veep um, and obviously how a lot of it coincidentally plays into real life politics, especially the last four years in America. And uh, <laughs> the show ended last uh, last year in uh, late 2019. Uh, but she did actually talk about the possibility of a reboot already. So a lot of- Okay. 
Yeah, a lot of the creators and uh, writers and uh, JLD have uh, thrown around the idea. They haven't really given any concrete details. It's more just sort of considering it. Uh, but she said the fact that Trump will no longer be the president and Biden, as she said, will return America to some sort of normality may offer mm. a chance because uh, she doesn't feel like that the fictional <laughs> representation of politics, you know, she'll be able to take the piss out of um, normal politics, you know, when, when reality is more crazy than satire, it sort of uh, mm. it defeats the purpose in a way. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that does happen because uh, Veep. Well, Veep fingers is, crossed. Yeah, Veep is awesome. But that's probably the quickest turnaround <laughs> for a reboot in uh, TV history if it does happen. I'd probably say so. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah, and that's all the Seinfeld news for the week. Very good, mate. Well, we are recording remotely today, uh, as you can probably tell from the recording, but uh, we're having a good time at the moment and we'll have an excellent time. We're going to chew some gum together over uh, over our app that we use to record. And when we come back, we're talking about some secondary characters today. We're going to focus a bit more on Lloyd Braun because uh, Matt McCoy, who we have interviewed in the past, he makes his debut on the show as Matt McCoy. And I've got other notes on some other secondary characters, Mr. Hardwood, as well as uh, Dina and... Yeah, a few others. Actually, there's a few here. Yeah, lots to talk about. Indeed. We'll be back. Hello, folks. Matt McCoy here, a.k.a. Lloyd Braun from Seinfeld. And I'm telling you right now, I do not want to be a secondary character. The Gum first aired in the US on December 14th, 1995, directed by Andy Ackerman and written by Tom Gamble and Max Pross. In this Season 7 episode, when Lloyd Braun, Matt McCoy, comes back from the psychiatric hospital, Kramer takes him under his wing and convinces Jerry to buy gum from him and wear glasses that don't belong to him to prove that Lloyd isn't crazy. George tries to prove his old neighbour, or to his old neighbour Dina, Mary Jo Keenan, that he isn't crazy after a cashier, cashier shortchanges him. Ruthie Cohen, played by Ruth Cohen and she's credited as cashier for the episode and it's actually a funny thing Steve because Ruth Cohen she's been in like 101 episodes of the show out of 180 and this is the only the first and only time she's been credited for the appearance yeah and uh just a bit of trivia about her um have you finished the synopsis yeah that, it's actually a really short one yep it's all done yeah, yeah cool cool well uh, let's get into the trivia and the first bit of trivia I did actually mention was that Ruthie Cohen and I didn't realize this was never actually a trained actress she was always just no. extra so uh even though she's only got you know what two or three scenes in this and she doesn't say much at all it's always just you know two three four five word sentences apparently there were lots of takes and there's lots of uh outtakes that you can see on youtube actually because she was Mm. really really nervous you know even though she'd been on sets for years and years and years and years and years she was just always a background or an extra so she never actually spoke so when she was asked to uh she was actually quite nervous so yeah, lots of good outtakes on YouTube, actually. Yeah, it's fab. And I find it unbelievable that she's been in so many episodes. And like I mentioned, this is the only one that she's been credited for. She's been uncredited for the other hundred. I find it unbelievable. Yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know whoever made that decision or if they were just like, well, we kind of need constant background stuff to make uh, background characters to make it a bit more realistic. I don't know. Hmm. But um, yeah, it worked yeah. out well. And they decided to give Ruth a, a go on this episode and give her some dialogue. Yeah, she paid her dues, you know. Oh, she I did. Mean, yeah, she did well. Point, she did well. At this point, she was probably in what like 70 ish odd episodes you're about two-thirds of the way through the series so they're probably like you know what this extra that's been there most of the time let's uh you know let's give her a few lines yeah you know, she's been there since season four she was in the trip part one the season four debut that was her first episode oh, yes, so. so she wasn't even yeah. in the first three seasons so she was nearly mm-hmm. in you know probably in 80 or 90 percent of episodes after season four yeah she was yeah but um, she but she uh didn't really have much part in the episode no 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 but it's still impressive mm-hmm. for an extra absolutely and uh speaking of 
extras or more prominent extras. Uh, Larry David, he guest starred uncredited as well. Uh, he was the newsstand owner who refuses to take George's uh, $20 note with the lipstick on it. And it's his final appearance on camera on the show. But however, his voice would feature in later episodes, particularly uh, how he was, he was the voice of George Steinbrenner. Yeah, it's a, it's a really strange choice for uh, Larry David to be cast in this role. Like the only other physical role uh, I can remember is, I can't remember the character's name or if he has a name, but um, Frank Costanza's mate with the with the cape. Yeah, yeah. And he plays like an eccentric weirdo. So I understand mm. why he goes, you know what, I'm going to play this role because this guy's a bit of a fruit loop. But this guy's just so normal and he's, you know, he just, he has a cigar and he's got a newsstand and he just tells George to take his 20 elsewhere. I don't know, it was like a last minute decision or, yeah, it's, it was a strange choice that Larry chose to act in a such a sort of inconsequential and uh, unimportant role yeah well i think like what we've like hypothesized like many moons ago it's probably a situation where they just needed someone for like a line you know like 30 seconds and then they're like you know larry's not doing anything just jump in and he's like yeah that's cool yeah true true yeah (laughs) one of those situations yeah he was more i think he was more hands-off in season seven like he still had a part in the show so he was like you know what there's like just a 20 30 second bit I'll, i'll jump in there it's fine yeah, true, true. The last bit of trivia I have, and uh, I didn't even realize it, but it's so true that, you know, George throughout most of the episode is trying to get a $20 bill back. But uh, if you think about it, because he claims that Ruthie stole a $20 bill from him and uh, she only gave him change for a 10, really, he should only be after a $10 note, not a $20 note, because, you know, he's already- got- Yeah, he does. He's, so he's trying to, if anything, he's trying to fleece Ruthie for 10 bucks more. Yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, you don't realize as you're watching the episode, but when someone points it out to you- it's uh you know it makes sense You're like oh hang on he uh he shouldn't be after 20 he should be after 10 <laughs> yeah he's just trying to cheat ruthie out of 10 bucks more which he would he would so do classic george yeah indeed and the final trivia bit that i have is when jerry is wearing the uh, glasses the really you know like the bottle spectacles <laughs> you know the bottle cap spectacles the massive ones the coke bottle spectacles yeah yeah he sees a blurry image of elaine uh but we think that it's just elaine you know looking at jerry and jerry doesn't know who that is it's just like the silhouette it turns out that it's actually jld laughing at jerry like uh, actually like laughing out of character so if you look really closely she's like it looks like she's kind of moving down and uh yeah she's actually laughing i listened to the signcast episode today for this episode and they pointed out they made the point of what was elaine laughing at because you know the, yeah. sh- the shot of a blurry elaine would just be a camera it wouldn't be jerry's eyes so jerry must have been doing something off to the side while she was yeah. to make her laugh because it doesn't make sense otherwise yeah because it wasn't elaine laughing it was jld so clearly something was happening behind the scenes you know she wouldn't be normally when they laugh they're laughing at um you know their fellow actors for fucking up a line or doing something funny or saying something funny. yeah but she was yeah. just in front of the blurry camera so someone off screen must have been making a face or maybe Jerry was just staring at her with the glasses and that made her laugh. But <laughs> he does look pretty good in them. He does look pretty funny. Yeah, that's a that's one of the classic visuals of just Jerry with the with the big uh, dorky glasses on. <laughs> yeah, so good. And we've seen JLD in so many outtakes laughing. You know, it probably takes like 20, 30 takes to get a scene. She has such a good time. Yeah, she seems to have a lot of fun. She's just, she's, I mean, you know, we, we praise her all the time for just being an amazing person, but she just seems to have this really positive, spirit you know uh, i'm sure she would be a lot of fun to work with and just you know really infectious yeah absolutely anyway do you have any other trivia or that's it no that's it cool let's talk about some secondary characters from the gum we have already talked about lloyd braun in his own what's the deal with episode but i feel like we haven't really spoken about him for a long time so maybe we can do like a bit of a refresher and then we can talk about him in the context of the episode how does that sound yeah i think that's a good idea because i've 
I, I think that this episode is probably the most consequential in terms of his character arc. You know, um, you know, we see him yep. just after a mental breakdown, um, and then you know him trying to just sort of be normal but not doing it so well in this episode. Yeah. And actually, now I think about it, we haven't done the Serenity Now, which he's in again, uh, Matt, and we haven't done the Non-Fat Yogurt where the other actor, Peter Callahan was in. So actually, this is the first standalone episode we've done where Lloyd's in it. Would yeah. you believe it? Yeah, true. <laughs> there you go. What we talked about him is um, when we did his own What's the Deal. So that was a long yeah. time ago. That was like- That was our first year. That was like our first like few months. That was 2017. So yeah, long yeah. time. If you want to hear what is probably an awkward and amateur take on the <laughs> Go way back and listen to that, but um, yeah, we'll yeah. Uh, a redo now. And we also, yeah, indeed, and we also interviewed Matt McCoy as well, which was a fun one. So uh, check that out. We we interviewed him around the time that episode came out. So check yeah. that out too. But anyway, he was played uh, Lloyd Braun in this episode by Matt McCoy. Uh, he's appeared in the films The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and the TV shows Jack Ryan and Silicon Valley. This is the first of two appearances on the show from Matt. Uh, the other one being The Serenity Now from season nine, which we have yet to do. However, this is the second of three times in the series that Lloyd has appeared on the show. As I mentioned before, Lloyd Braun makes his debut in the non-fat yogurt, but he was played by another actor, Peter Callahan. And like I said, check out our, the What's the Deal with Lloyd as well as uh, Matt's interview where we talked to him about uh, his time on the show and what he was doing at the time. He was actually filming Jack Ryan at the time we recorded. Yeah, he was in Morocco, I think, Tangier. Yeah, yep, Morocco. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah, and it's funny because the next year I really like Jack Ryan and I watched the series the year after and I'm like, ah, there he is. There he is. He plays a hostage, I think he, he said, yeah? yeah like a scientist who's used to call it hostage or taken I hostage? I think he's a missionary. A missionary, yep, yeah. yep. They filmed it in Morocco, but it's set in, I think, Iraq or Iran, somewhere else, like, a you know, somewhere where there's a war, Afghanistan maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. It's funny how we talked about it then and, you know, you watch the show a year later and it's like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> That's where he was. It's fun. Yeah, it's funny to think that, you know, because I think he said he was in the middle of filming or, you know, it, it, it was at some point during the filming and it was like an eight-week shoot for him you know it's funny to you watch the series and you're like you don't know which day that we talked to him on but you know yeah. you could have talked to him an hour before footage that made it to the actual uh, series was in you know it's a strange sort of messes with your head a bit yeah it does really cool but anyway Lloyd Braun he has fallen from grace since the non-fat yogurt he was the advisor to the Mayor Dinkins campaign at the time and unfortunately due to Elaine's uh, name tag suggestion uh, he put that to Dinkins and Dinkins lost the election that was the reason and Lloyd had a nervous breakdown and went to a psychiatric hospital. I feel like that Kramer, like, because Kramer thinks that, you know, Lloyd's part of, like, the mayor's office as well for the current mayor, who I assume was Giuliani, wasn't it, at the time? Yeah, this was only a couple of years after Dinkins lost. This was season seven, yeah. was five. So, yeah, Giuliani would have been in his, still in his first term. Yeah, 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 sure. So, you know, Kramer thinks that, you know, he's just a part of Giuliani's office. You know, he's like an advisor. But I feel like that he's not actually in it. I feel like... He's just, you know, he's recovered from his nervous breakdown, but I don't think he's quite mentally fit enough to go back to work. I just feel like he's probably delusional and he thinks that he's he thinks that he's working for the mayor's office and Kramer believes him. Yeah, I never got the impression that he was still actually working for the mayor's office because Kramer's yeah. his mayoral connections. I just thought that, you know, he's not working for the mayor, but, you know, it's only a couple of years since he did work for the mayor, so he'd still know some people, you know, in, in City Hall or wherever the mayor works. So he'd yeah. still have some connections, but he doesn't have a direct line to the mayor. Oh, yeah. I'm No, sorry. You're right. Yeah, no, he had mayoral connections, but I feel like he's probably, after his breakdown, he's just severed all the ties for the mayoral connections. So I feel like he probably doesn't speak to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm sure uh, Lloyd would like to be 
you know, on friendly terms with whoever's there that he knew before mm. Dinkins lost. But, you know, for it's unfortunate to say that I reckon it would be more a case of anyone in the mayoral office would cut ties with him. You know, oh, we yeah. want to be seen with that crazy guy. You know, he's an embarrassment, something like that. Um, you know, yeah. which probably adds to the pain of, you know, his mental breakdown. Yeah, it would. It would. Uh, yeah, he, he's gone through a lot, Lloyd. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell in this episode is really trying hard to sort of be normal, but it feels like he's... Uh, it feels rehearsed. You know, he's he's mm. cocky, he's awkward. He, he makes everyone a bit uncomfortable. Um, yeah. You know, he doesn't even understand social cues, especially with the gum. But mm. a non-fat yogurt, he's like smooth. He's a smooth operator. He's got to be, you know, he's, he's working for the mayor, so he's got to be slick. So his idea of how to be a person has just completely gone out the window. Shattered. Yeah. Gone out the window. Yeah. You can, tell, you can tell that it's very fragile because anytime anyone says the word insane or crazy or anything around him, you can tell it triggers him. He's like, hang on, am I crazy? Mm. Yeah. You know? So it, it's walking a very fine line between just acting normal, faking it until you make it almost, and, mm. you know, slip, slipping back into a pretty pretty bleak mental state i think yeah yeah he's definitely uh he's probably gone more the way of you know not you know not recovering too well mentally and still in that state yeah i think it's gotten to a point where you know he can function on some level in normal society you know he's not going to lose his mind or he's not going to put anyone's safety at risk or his own safety but it's not a full recovery you know he's just sort of you know and maybe you know maybe his psychiatrist or whoever was looking after him at the at the uh, facility maybe they realize that look you know he needs to start to reintegrate back into society to help his recovery even though it's going to be yeah. awkward and clunky which you can clearly see in this episode you know that's sometimes you've got to just jump in rather than fully recover and then come back in mm, yeah, yeah it takes a bit of time to, to get back into it yeah and I mean, obviously, uh, you know, how awkward he is in this episode is sort of comedic from our point of view. But speaking as someone who's had, you know, what was more or less a mental breakdown, it's and, and struggling to sort of feel normal again and just act normal around people without overthinking it and being paranoid about, oh, my God, everyone thinks I'm mental. You know, there, there was a bit of a for me personally, and I'm, you know, a lot of other people can relate as well. There was a bit of uh, empathy there. I thought, you know, I felt really sorry for him because he, he's a nice he's a nice man, but he's just, you know, he's just not doing so well, you know. And yeah. unfortunately, other than Kramer, the people who we're spending time with in this episode, frankly, don't give a shit about him because they're, yeah. not, they're not the sort of people who do. And Kramer, I mean, I don't know if Kramer's genuinely trying to take him under his wing, as he says, or if he's just pretending to be his friend for that mayoral connection to get the uh, the cinema certified as a, you know, I can't remember the exact term, but, you know, yeah. like certified as like a vintage building or, you know, whatever it is. I think it's more towards trying to get that mayoral or that special status, but he's yeah. also probably feeling for Lloyd as well, because we have mentioned many times that Kramer is probably the most empathetic of the four, and, you know, he does genuinely care about people, so I feel like he does, he understands that Lloyd's gone through a lot and he wants to try and help him, but I think the majority of his his MO is getting that status. Yeah, I don't think it's completely transparent or, you know, I don't think he's being completely um, false in his motivation, but, you know, it is mixed in with that that self-serving uh, desire to get the, the cinema certified. Yeah, I mean, I, I could imagine that, you know, if, if Lloyd Braun didn't have any mayoral connections, you know, if he didn't have that in his past and Kramer, you know, ran into him however you know you don't really know how he comes into Kramer's life maybe runs into him or you know he just gets mm. a grapevine or something I still think Kramer would have helped him out but maybe not to the extent in this episode because he's basically with Kramer the whole time yeah he's, he's like a he's, he's, he reminds me almost of I can't remember the guy's name uh, is it Darren in, um, in Kramer oh, Darren in the voice that we did a couple of weeks ago yeah yeah, yep. yeah it almost, you know he's yeah. always Kramer around like a puppy dog <laughs> yeah he's almost he's like a puppy dog he's, he's dependent on Kramer because Kramer's the only one who's giving him a chance yeah I think so. I think 
yeah, Kramer, you know, Kramer kind of patronizes him a bit and, uh, you know, unfortunately kind of does him a disservice by, yeah. you know, by protecting him too much, you know, especially like, you know, when he orders the hot dog and the guy goes, are you crazy? Like, you know, a cra- what? <laughs> it's been here you since know? the silent era. Yeah. And he goes, it's a perfectly sane food to eat. And the fact that he eats, <laughs> eats the hot dog just to prove to him that it's a normal hot dog and that he's not insane is just way over the top and totally yeah. It's like you don't, but, you don't need yeah. you know, he's fragile, sure, but you don't need to, um, you know, eat his food for him. But he had a good, you know, he had a, yeah, his heart was in the right place for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kramer always has good motivations, but he's very bad at judging uh, social norms and uh, other people's mm. sort of comfort zones. You know, he always steps over that line. So, you know, yeah. this is just another case of that. But yeah, I, I feel really sorry for Lloyd. You know, he, you can tell that he really wants to befriend Jerry, you know, and then he thinks that the gum is a way to become his friend. But, you know, even, you know, Jerry's not a nice person and he has no interest in being his friend, gum or no gum. But if I were Jerry and I wasn't an asshole, but I was still Jerry in this situation, <laughs> you know, persistently offering to buy me gum would be very awkward. And I think Jerry goes along with it very, I don't know, like credit to Jerry, you know, we criticize Jerry for being a bit of an asshole all the time and he is. But credit to Jerry for sort of playing along, you know, just to sort of make him feel a bit more sane. Yeah, to make him feel a bit better. I mean, with, with the gum and I was going to go to the gum because I was thinking, why would Lloyd like gum so much? But I feel like with the gum, he probably thinks like he, like because as I mentioned before that I feel like Kramer thinks that Lloyd can still, he's still part of the hustle, like he can still get done, like things done, like connections for this and that and stuff. But I feel like Lloyd, he's kind of missing, like I don't think he has the abilities like he did in the past when he was with Dinkins. And I think the best thing he can do is just get gum from like some Chinese shop in Chinatown, you know what I mean? That's like the best that he can do. And he feels like he's got skin in the game. Yeah, I think we, it, it, when you, as you were saying that, it, it rings a really big bell. I think we did talk about that's why he was really interested in hooking up whoever with the gum because, mm. it was, you know, it was his current version of being like, you know, the man with the connections. Like I can hook you up with a good restaurant seat or like floor tickets at a Knicks game or, you know, I've got yep. those connections. And the best he can do is just, like you said, is a box of gum, you know, at probably a slightly cheaper than retail price because he's kind of friendly with the with the Chinese shopkeeper. Yeah, that's the best he can do. And and like I'm echoing what you said, I feel really sorry for him too in this episode. Lloyd's Lloyd's really gone down, you know, a bad path. And and Jerry makes a good point because George says, my mum always said that I wanted to, I should be like Lloyd Braun. And then Jerry says, now that Lloyd Braun is more like you to George, that line kind of makes sense. Sort of poetically just. Yeah, he's become like a loser like George. Yeah, basically. I mean, (laughs) one mark against Lloyd is that he is a bit creepy towards Elaine, but, you know, to his credit, if, uh, you know, if you're in this sort of state where you don't really understand social cues, it is harder for him to understand and respect boundaries and not understand that, you know, Elaine having a wet shirt and uh, cleavage is not her flirting with him. Yeah, well. He just can't read or understand social cues. No, he can't. And, uh, you know, you you hope that, you know, Lloyd's, you know, come around and he's become, you know, his old self, but in the serenity now, he goes off the rails. He pretends to make sales for computers but the phone isn't even plugged in yeah he uh obviously his recovery is uh you know not linear you know maybe between no. the gum and the serenity now he had a few uh you know periods where he was a bit more you know well adjusted and then you know it's it's a back and forth the path to recovery is uh never a straight one so no, it's not but uh yeah well when we do the serenity now eventually we'll uh delve into that aspect of lloyd in that time yeah for sure do you have anything else about mm-hmm. it no but like i said you can go back and uh we do a full episode just on lloyd braun What's the deal with Lloyd Braun? I think it's episode 14 or 15, I think. Um, so go back there and uh, check it out when we were young and 
and uh, you know, young podcasters, young amateurs. Yeah, green around the gills. Uh, green around the gills. All right, let's talk about Dina Lazari. Yes, she's played by Mary Joan Keenan. Uh, she is oh, Joe Keenan. Sorry, she's known for Nothing to Lose and Thumb Tannic. Must be a, a thumb puppet rendition of Titanic. I got no idea. <laughs> I saw that on IMDb, and I'm like, okay, that sounds really weird. Yeah, sounds odd. I love you, Thumb Jack. I love you, Thumb Rose. <laughs> yeah, and then Celine Dion plays in the background. Instead of a handprint on the window, it's just a thumbprint, you know. <laughs> thumbprint. Making love on the misty window. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pinky fingers and ring fingers only on the boats. <laughs> Thumbs have to stay behind. But yes, anyway. Is, uh, is it Dawn? What's her name? Dawn? No. Rose. 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 Yeah. Jack gives uh, Rose the thumbs up when he's drowning in the ice when she's... <laughs> Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger style from Terminator 2. Yeah. <laughs> the thumbs up. <laughs> Finger paint me like one of your girls. Like one of your French girls. Anyway, Dina, yes, Dina Lazari, she was uh, George's neighbour growing up, and they've obviously known each other since childhood. Uh, she's taken time off work to look after her father, Pop, who we'll talk about soon, and because uh, Pop had a nervous breakdown. Yeah, and as she said, she uh, has become more sensitive to the signs um, of people uh, starting to have or going through a nervous breakdown. And uh, at first I thought, well, you know, it's very nice that even though she is uh, misguided, uh, in this episode, and she uh, makes the wrong assumptions about George. You know, it's a very, it's it's kind of like Kramer, where the motivation is nice. You know, it's a good thing. She wants George to be okay, and she wants to step in and make sure that he's got help if he needs it and whatever. But the fact that she kind of assumes, and then George has to prove her wrong, rather than the other way around. Like, fair enough that she suspects that maybe George is going through something, but rather than just assume and then having to be proven incorrect and not letting go of that assumption is kind of, it is kind of presumptuous and rude. I'd be very, very bothered if someone said to me, look, uh, you know, I'm concerned about your mental health. I'd be very flattered. But if mm. they told me and I knew that I wasn't going through a mental breakdown, but if they were insistent and then I had to spend the next however long to, to convince them that I'm not, that would actually drive me crazy, which, you know, yeah, like Kramer, her motivation is good. You know, she's just looking out for someone in her life, but she sort of goes about it in this very presumptuous, you know, stepping out of the line way, I think. Yeah, she does. I mean, because George in this episode, he's just a victim of circumstance. I mean, you know, it makes to um, Dina, it looks like that George is indeed crazy, but George is just, you know, a victim of unfortunate events. Yeah, and and I think you have to give people, you know, the benefit of the doubt in these circumstances. Again, like if I if I was in her situation and I saw someone who I thought maybe was struggling, I'd ask if they were. I wouldn't assume they were and then expect them to prove me wrong. Um, yeah. You know, I'd broach the question in a bit more of a subtle, respectful way, not just go, well, you're obviously going through a breakdown and you have to convince me you're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she definitely uh, can't really read the room, can she? I mean, she just kind of goes, you know, yeah, because she kind of just goes straight for it. She's like, oh, George, you must be having a nervous breakdown like my father, which isn't necessarily true. I mean, George is, you know, insane and, you know, depressed and everything in his own right, but uh, she kind of oh, goes yeah. a bit overboard. George is a very, very damaged human being. So she's, oh, probably, yeah. re she's probably reading a bit of that as well, just his general uh, mental illness and maladjustedness. But yeah, I, I think she just sort of, she assumes incorrectly and yeah, she's just not intentionally rude, but just, you know, a bit over-assumptive and presumptuous. So, you know, but I mean, to her credit, given all the circumstances that happen to George, you know, the series of, of unfortunate coincidences that before mm -hmm. George, a very short amount of time, that always yeah. involved either Ruthie, a $20 bill or Lloyd Braun. I can understand why <laughs> she would go, George is trying to tell me he's not crazy, but everything 
goes back to, to, to either Lloyd Braun or Ruthie or Bill. Oh, Ruthie, yeah. You know, I can understand why she feels justified in her assumption, but uh, I just don't think it's right. No, and I feel like she's probably one of the only people on the show who genuinely cares for him, who cares for George. Like, not even his parents care for him. And I feel like she's trying everything to try and get George right, but then when she sees him in the Henry VIII suit, she probably thinks George, like, to her, in her eyes, she probably thinks that George is just so far gone that he can't be saved. That's why she runs off. Yeah, I was going to say you know she she makes time to see george you know she says to him you know you're probably wondering why we're seeing each other again and George, funnily enough, thinks that she's interested in him romantically. He's always like, well, you know, it's understandable. And then she starts talking about, uh, you know, signs of a mental breakdown. And he's like, what are you talking about? He has no yeah. idea. He thinks he's <laughs> interested in him, you know, which is classic George. But yeah, it gets, you know, at first she's concerned and she makes time to see him and to try and help him. But uh, yeah, when she sees him in the, the Henry VIII costume, she's she her, her concern turns to fear. Yeah, to fear. And that's why she runs away because she's given him every chance, you know, to try and make himself, you know, get better and stuff. And uh, she probably thinks, wow, George is really far gone, like more than I expected. Yeah. And like, I mean, some of George's, again, series of unfortunate circumstances. I do that, yeah. for George in this in this episode. He seems to cop more shit than I guess he deserves. But, you know, if I were her and I saw all those things, he, you know, he does that quite aggressively. You know, he chases after the horse, his car's on fire. He, you know, he does, he, do, he is a bit unstable from her point of view. So I can understand why hmm. she's a bit, she goes from concern to fear. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. She, then, uh, she's extremely concerned. Yeah. And then the Henry VIII costume is just sort of the final straw. The final straw, yeah, that, that's it. That that just breaks the camel's back. I think so. What I don't get, and it's a bit of a goof, I guess, is um, when uh, he's trying to convince her that he's not crazy and uh, he sees Jerry in the car. Mm-hmm. Jerry obviously hears George and George says, hey, Jerry, it's me, George. And George has a distinctive voice. And how many people in Jerry's life would he know that a name's George? Fair, you know, he can't see him, but he doesn't even respond verbally. You know, to me, it was like a bit of a, you know, that's that was the joke that he didn't see him or acknowledge him. But yeah. In real life, he would have at least recognized his voice. Well, to be fair, the window was up. So maybe Jerry could hear like muffled, you know, muffled oh, words. Okay. So True. yeah, I'll probably give Bedford down. Yeah, okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else about Dina? No, but I think you made really good points. I mean, she just kind of assumes that George is mentally ill, even though, well, he, he's got his issues, but he's not uh, He's not suffering from a nervous breakdown. And uh, yeah, she. I feel like I, I appreciate that there's a character who genuinely cares for George. You know, yeah, it doesn't no, happen often. Yeah, it is nice. But uh, her concern has limits. You know, she just is not mm. a fan of Victorian costumes. No, it <laughs> doesn't like that era. No, no, not at all. No. I reckon we should talk about, this is the first time we're going to do this, but I think we should talk about Ruthie Cohen. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were thinking of doing like a what's the deal with Ruthie Cohen like probably a year or two ago, but then we never got around to it. And, uh, you know, she's appeared in pretty much every episode we've done so far. And, uh, yeah, we thought, well, this is the episode where she's credited and she has like a, she has a, a, an impact on the episode. And I thought, why not? Let's, let's talk about Ruthie. Yeah, of course. That's what we do. All right. So she's played by Ruth Cohen. She's appeared in Seinfeld more times than any other secondary character. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, she's appeared in 101 episodes as the monk cashier often in non-speaking roles her first episode was in the trip part one the season four premiere and her last appearance was in the finale uh, but she was uncredited in that episode uh this like i mentioned is her only credited appearance on seinfeld ruth she passed away in 2008 in panorama city california and she was aged 78 
Hmm. So I feel like, Steve, that she, you know, because I said she had a huge part in the episode and she certainly deserves to be talked about. Um, I think she, well, she rides a horse in, in Central Park. So I assume she likes riding horses. She probably has like a stable or she goes to a stable and, uh, you know, rides horses. Uh, she must have a, have an affinity for them. Yeah, maybe she grew up with horses. You know, maybe her family, maybe she grew up in a more regional area, you know, where they had horses on a farm or something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, her moving to the city, you know, Obviously, having horses is a lot harder in uh, New York City, especially Manhattan. So, you know, any chance you can get to ride a horse, even if it's just sort of a short trip around Central Park, is, is better than nothing for it. I'm surprised. Would you need like a permit maybe to ride in Central Park? <laughs> I don't see too many horses in parks. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Central Park's pretty liberal in terms of what you can do there, I think, because it's so important to the city's, you know, inhabitants that they have like a, a natural kind of area. I think the city is pretty like... Open, you know, as long as you're not causing damage. Mm. You know, if you just if you're just cruising around a horse on a path, that's what's the difference between a horse and a bike or a, a pedestrian? You know, you just it's just another being walking, I guess. You know. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, but I imagine, yeah, you, there would be some extra responsibilities or expectations. You know, I imagine, you know, I'm just thinking of dog walking. You have to take the plastic bags to pick up their their shit. You know, you probably mm. have to take yeah. a bin bag, <laughs> one of those big black garbage bags, <laughs> like a bin liner as opposed to yeah, God, little thin plastic bags. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, my fiance and I, we had a chat about this yesterday because we were buying some stuff online for our dog and we were going to get poop bags. And then we <laughs> there was like two options to filter for like, because on the website we use, there's like options to filter for different animals, like what you need. And we looked at poop bags and one of them was for dogs and the other one was for horses. And we're like, horse poop bags? <laughs> that must be like freaking huge. Wow. <laughs> But no, yeah, but they weren't actually, yeah, but they, yeah, glad bags, but they weren't actually poop bags. For some reason, there was like some horse products that were incorporated into the poop bags. I don't know, it was weird, but it was nothing to do with poop. So yeah, it's funny. It's just funny how horses was there. And it's like, oh my God, you could probably put a whole human being in one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've, I've seen and I've stood in some horse shit and uh, it's, it's big. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. Big animals, big majestic creatures, the old horses. I, she's a really stoic person, you know. She just kind of gets on with her work. She doesn't, you know, embellish on too many things. And uh, even the whole $20 issue, like, you'd expect, like, it would have been, like, interesting if Ruthie was, like, through a loud, you know, and she argumentative person to George and she started going nuts, you know. With all these episodes, she's been so quiet. It would have been an interesting take if she was, like, a really angry person, like, telling George to piss off and stuff and don't worry about it. Um, But the fact she's just so calm, you know, so stoic about the whole thing, she even lets George... George go into the till to look at the twenty dollar notes. I mean, George, if he was this, like a really seedy guy, he could have easily just grabbed all the money and ran off. But you know, she's so well. She probably because she's seen George so many times in the shot in the cafe, she knows who he is. So he's like, you know what? I know who you are. You come in here all the time. So uh, yeah, have a look at all my my notes. Yeah, and I mean, you know, George has caused a bit of trouble at Monks from time to time. You know, he's been rude to waitresses. I'm sure he complains a lot about being overcharged, or you know, he's probably got a reputation for leaving small tips. So you know. Even though they've never had on screen any direct interaction, she would not only recognize him, just, you know, I've seen his face. She would know a bit about who he is. She would, you know, she would understand his character. And I think she knows that he's petty. And uh, that's why she's just so calm and indifferent about his uh, rantings about the $20 bill. Because one, she knows she's right. And two, she's just like, well, I know who you are. I don't really care. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you've come here so many times. I've seen you at least, you know, a hundred times in the whole series of the show. Well, that's not what she'd say, but what we think. 
think. And uh, yeah, she's probably like, yeah, I've seen you. You're, you're a regular, you're a daily customer. It's fine. <laughs> you yeah, can come yeah. and raid the till if you have to. Yeah. And in a way, she's probably on some level enjoying the misfortune that George experiences in this episode because, you know, again, George, you know, we see him and it probably happens a lot more off screen. You know, he sort of doesn't treat the the hospitality staff very well. He doesn't tip them very well. He's a bit of a troublemaker. He's a bit of a whinger. You know, he just, he causes a lot of shit around monks. And when she she sees him, you know, go through a bit of misfortune, uh, she's probably like, you know what? I've seen you do so many, not horrible, but like just kind of questionable things. Questionable things to people. This is kind of just, you know, she probably is just relishing the karmic uh, retribution. Yeah, she's relishing it. And even like you can hear it in her voice when the LeBaron, George's LeBaron from many episodes catches on fire and it's useless. You know, it's basically written off. You see Ruthie pull up, you know, because George goes up to the car and says, hey, I'm trying to get in here when he's trying to, you know, warm up the car. And it's Ruthie. And then Ruthie says, your car's on fire. But she doesn't seem like concerned for George. You know, the fact that his car's on fire, she's just like, oh, your car's on fire. And then (laughs) he's trying to put out the fire and then she goes merry christmas and just drives off yeah which is a bit of a dig you know bit of it is merry christmas while you're while you're trying to put your car out yeah um, i know so he knows she knows who what he's like yeah and i i, I think um you know she I, i'm assuming that she's probably worked in hospitality or some sort of service industry probably most of her life you know at least a big chunk of her life and she's probably dealt with so many difficult weird rude customers that nothing really phases her anymore she's just yeah she's seen it all so george is just another random you know freak who is just, you know, whatever. Like, you just won over a million. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's probably really observant for all the customers, especially the regulars. Like, yeah, like with George and Jerry and all that, she knows what they're like, what they do, you know, what they order because she sees the bills and stuff and uh, she knows what makes them tick. Yeah, you know, and like I said, she's probably... <laughs> enjoying on some level you know the the misfortune uh, of george in this episode that's why she's yeah like, merry i think christmas. so kind of like a fuck you. <laughs> yeah pretty much like a fuck you yeah, yeah. <laughs> merry christmas that's actually i think that's only the second mention or the only other reference other than when kramer says you know this is what the holidays are about three buddies sitting around chewing gum it's really the only mention of christmas other than kramer mentioning a holidays yeah and but you do see the christmas decorations at monks and and everything but yeah you don't really hear them talk about christmas much yeah they don't really mention it. it's kind of like a subtle background thing yeah yeah it's not really in your face like others no do you have anything Mm. else about uh, no, but I, well, Ruthie, no, but I'm really glad we talked about her for the first time in nearly four years. <laughs> We've actually done a bit of an analysis on her because, yeah, I found it really hard to talk about her in her own standalone episode because she's been in so many, but she doesn't do much. You know, she's just the cashier, but now in this one, she really shines and I appreciate it. I appreciate the fact they gave Ruthie a go. She, you know, they she was probably confident. They probably went up to her and she was, they were asking, oh, are you, are you confident to, you know, do a couple of scenes, you know, speaking lines? And uh, she's probably like, yeah, I'll give it a go. Why not? No, she did pretty well. Yeah, no, she did. Considering she's not an actress at all and that uh, she was very nervous, she did very, very well. And uh, another another bit of trivia I didn't mention at the top of the episode I thought was really sweet was um, that she, I don't know where her family are from, but she actually flew her, you know, her family out because, you know, she was doing a bit more of a serious role in Seinfeld. So she flew them all out to sort of, you know, so they could watch her, which I thought was just really, really sweet. That's really sweet. Yeah. And uh, she passed away in California too. So she must have spent the rest of her life there. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Um, you know, Hollywood's got a big extra scene, so she was. Uh, yeah, you know, she was amongst it. Uh, but what a gig she got! Jeez, 101 episodes of 
probably the greatest comedy of all time. Indeed. All right, let's talk about uh, Jeffrey Harwood. Jeffrey Harwood. Harwood. <laughs> he's played by British actor Eric Christmas. Uh, he's known for mostly for his theatre work. He's performed in productions of uh, Shakespeare and Noel Coward productions. In for film, he was in the films Porky's, The Andromeda Strain and Mouse Hunt. Uh, he passed away in the year 2000 in California in Camarillo. He was aged 84. I feel like with Mr. Harwood, he's very talented at what he does, wardrobe design, but I feel feel like he never quite landed that big head wardrobe role because his his biggest credit according to Kramer was being an assistant wardrobe for Spartacus which was still a, a much acclaimed Kubrick Stanley Kubrick film but I feel like he didn't quite uh, he didn't quite get to that big Oscar nominated wardrobe role yeah it kind of reminds me of you know he's obviously involved in the creative process but he's also sort of more in the administrative or even business side of the the industry um, yeah and that's, that's because again he's never gotten his break or maybe he just wasn't talented enough he's obviously very talented but maybe you just didn't have that X factor. It reminds me of, you know, my fiance has worked in the music industry for years and there's tons of people who work on the business side of the industry who are very talented musicians, but they just have never gotten their break or, you know, they've always sort of like they've been on the cusp a few times, but they've never like fully, you know, gotten big or blown up. So they, they accept a role on the business side where they can still be involved, but they're not sort of at the forefront creatively. So it kind of reminded me of that a bit where you know, yeah. his, his creative itch still gets scratched, but uh, yeah, he's... He's just never, never, like you said, never landed that huge, you know, career making and uh, reputation defining role or project. And that's many, that's with many creative uh, outlets as well. Like you mentioned, like with music and stuff, you might have five or 10 successful people in one field creatively, but then you'll have five, 10,000 others with just as much talent, but they don't quite have, you like you said, the X factor to, to go all the way. Yeah. And, and, you know, even if they do have the X factor, not everyone can succeed. You know, there's only so many places at the top of every creative industry and you've got so many people trying to get there, all who are probably worthy in their own right. But, you know, there's luck, there's who you know, there's connections, there's... Yeah, fortune. There's so many different factors that go into it. But he doesn't yep. seem bitter. You know, I think he maybe when he was younger, you know, maybe he uh, resented always being looked over or passed over. But at this stage, I think he's happy with just more sort of administrative kind of background role where he's still in the industry, but he's not, you know, a, a leader. Yeah, he seems very content to be behind the scenes. Yeah, he seems very comfortable. Um, you know, he's obviously very proud. Um, I can't remember the name of the organization. Uh, he just calls it the foundation. Oh, sorry, the institution, I should say. And then Kramer gives it the the acronym, the weird, strange acronym. I forgot what it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. He's like, we prefer to call it the institution. <laughs> the institution. Um, a side note, I love when George says when, when um, he's got the suit to Dina, the Henry VIII suit, he goes, I got it from the institution. Sounds like yeah. he got it from the mental institution. I love that. That's a great line. It's a good setup. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just a side note on that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I noticed that as well. I thought that was really clever. Yeah, no, he seems to be very satisfied with his, uh, you know, his role in the in the sort of creative theatre industry, you know, and he he, he still has a lot of influence and he still has a lot of respect because he's running, you know, a pretty important organization for the preservation of uh, costumes and, and theater props and stuff. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I think he's OK. Um, yeah, I think he's all right. Yeah. And uh, he obviously really likes buttons. He does, especially ivory buttons, antique ivory. And I appreciate how he's such a very he's a very kind and generous man because even Elaine, you know, goes up to him in the end credits or the, the credits scene and says, that's my button. And, and, you know, I've been looking for that. You know, you think that maybe he'll 
Mr. Harwood would have an argument and then Elaine might fight him or, you know, there'd be a bit of a confrontation or it'll escalate, but Mr. Harwood just gives her the button. Yeah, no, I think um, I think uh, if it was any other character, maybe maybe if it was an American guy, I don't mm. want to be anti-American, but in terms of Seinfeld writing, I think the fact that he's like this small, charming, gentle British man, it would be hard to make him just all of a sudden mean over a button or, you know, no. Whereas if he was maybe a different person, you know, yeah, he would have been become a bit more possessive or accused Elaine of trying to steal his button or whatever. Yeah, because the joke in the scene was more, you know, to Kramer and Lloyd to make it look like that Elaine's very flirtatious. Yeah, 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 yeah. To anyone, even like older men. Yeah, and uh, Lloyd actually says, you know, we've got to get the Elena boyfriend. <laughs> He'll tell me about it. Yeah, no, for I, sure. So. No, I really like Jeffrey Harwood. He's just like a – I reckon he'd be the sort of person you could sit down and he'd tell you like all sorts of amazing tales about, you know, the, the craziness and the divas and all the, you know, all the all the opulence and the craziness of showbiz. Yeah, he'd have it all. And, uh, yeah, he's really humble with what he's done and he's probably, yeah, after – he was probably, like you mentioned, really jealous in his younger years for not getting landing that big role, that big wardrobe role, but he's probably, yeah, very content and he'd rather be behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's just, yeah, he um, his bitterness slowly melted away and he just accepted his lot and, uh, you know, he can still do a lot and he still has a lot of respect. He does, he does. Uh, do you have any other notes on him? Uh, no, that was it. Cool. I only have some notes just on Pop Lazari, so Dan's um, father, do you, or Dean, sorry, Dina's father, I should say. Do you have any uh, notes on other characters? Uh, no. Cool. All right, we'll quickly talk about Pop, played by Sandy Ward. Uh, he's known for The Perfect Storm, Under Siege and Cujo. He's appeared in those films. He passed away in 2005 in Orange County, California. He was also age 78, like Ruthie, uh, Ruth Cohen was. So Pop Lazari, yes, had a nervous breakdown and his daughter Dina is looking after him. I feel like because he used to own an auto shop, I feel like he probably lost a lot of money financially. I- I'm going to hypothesize here that he's one of those poor like mum and pop business owners who probably fell victim to like big corporations, like big retail chains. I feel like maybe like a big, I don't know any, I don't know what companies they are in America, but like, you know, like in Australia, we've got like super cheap auto, Repco, like they're like car stores, like auto stores and they sell like parts for like cars and yeah, accessories and that sort of thing. I feel like maybe something like that opened up near him and they offered like a wider range with cheaper prices and then after several years, you know, of uh, his loyal customers going to him for, uh, you know, servicing and parts and stuff and uh, other accessories for cars, uh, people probably went there because it was much cheaper and he fell victim to uh, the modern or modern capitalism. Yeah, no, I would agree that uh, I was trying to think why did he have a mental breakdown and really the only uh, clue you get is that he own the auto shop so i just made that association as well where his business failed for whatever reason i like your uh idea that uh, a much more large uh, a larger competitor you know set up shop near him and drove the little guy out of business and uh that was just too much for him and he could have lost his marbles yeah i feel like that's what it was but again i don't know any american i'm sure there's plenty of american auto stores but uh yeah if you're an american just think of an auto store and uh yeah let's assume that one of those opened up nearby yeah for sure yeah so um yeah had a nervous breakdown and probably he might even have early onset alzheimer's as well because he's trying to tinker with the car but george you know george is talking to dina and dina says he hasn't had the shop in years couple of years but you see him like bashing the engine with a spanner so i feel like he probably thinks he remembers what to do with cars but if you if you've been out of the game for like two years you'd still remember like you'd know what parts are what so he might even have something more complicated than just having a nervous breakdown yeah or you know maybe his uh alzheimer's or you know cognitive decline makes him think that his car's his uh that george's car's his Mm, yeah yeah you know and you know if it fucks up well it's it's my car so it doesn't matter (laughs) 
Um, yeah. Gets that he's bashing someone else's car. Someone else's car, yeah. And that's the end of the Lord Baron in, in that yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. John Boyd will be sad. I do like when uh, George, after he visits Dina and Pop, when he's driving, uh, I think, to probably to go meet Jerry, I guess. And he hears like the weird sound coming from the engine and he just goes, pop. I like how Jason Alexander, you can see him actually laughing. You're like, he's got like a smile on his face. You can see like he's sort of smiling a little bit when he goes, pop. Yeah, he's probably done like three takes, and he's kicked. And Jason kept pissing himself, laughing, doing it. But yeah, yeah you can well, see he's kind of like holding in a smile a little bit when he does it. I like it. Yeah, another bit of trivia actually is that uh, that line was ad libbed, wasn't part, wasn't in the script. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Jason probably needed a line or he wanted one, and he's like, "This is it." Pop, 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 pop. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the sound his engine was making: pop, pop, crack, yeah. <laughs> sizzle. <laughs> Onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Anyway, they're all the characters I have, buddy. Uh, Let's take a really quick break, and when we come back, we are going to find out where the gum sits in our overall episodes we have done so far, and we'll find out if any of today's secondary characters make our top 20 as we celebrate Festivus at the end of 2020. Great movie, huh? Yeah. Sorry you forgot those glasses. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) How'd you like that gum? Eh, I loved it. Kramer, you know what? There, there isn't a light there in the ladies' Yeah, yeah, it's being repaired. Oh, God. You all right? Oh, I sat too close to the screen. Oh, I just got to stretch out in a hot bath. Ivan, where does the gum appear in uh, your list of episodes we've done so far? Number 56 out of 155 that we have done. So yeah, I enjoyed this episode. It was fun. I did like the secondary characters. I did like Lloyd. Uh, I do have a bit of a soft spot for Lloyd Braun, probably because we've interviewed Matt McCoy and he was a really cool guy. Yeah, I just really like Lloyd Braun. Uh, I like, yeah, I think it's great how they brought him back. You know, he was in the non-fat yoga. He was just such a successful guy and he had lots of things going for him. But then you see he just falls and he just, his whole like career, his personal life, everything just goes by the wayside. And I, I appreciate how they uh, brought him back and uh yeah i like the george subplot as well with his car and with dina and stuff and uh, i love how george isn't insane but to dina you know he's losing his mind and uh you know no matter what george does he can't prove to dina that is you know he's just a victim of circumstance so i do appreciate it i feel like the elaine subplot because i find in a lot of later episodes of seinfeld it was a lot of elaine subplots were more focused on her like being a woman you know like with her wet t-shirts and people would do like a couple episodes we did previous where you know it's about the cat fight you know she argues with someone and they go you know like really like outdated kind of subplots because she's a woman i feel like it's probably one of those dated ones as well with like a wet t-shirt and you know her blouse you know unbuttoned and stuff probably stuff that probably wouldn't really fly today i felt like that was a bit a bit weak but overall i I really enjoyed the episode what about you uh yeah for me it was number 37 so oh uh, pretty good ranking yeah no i really like this episode i love how uh i really admire the writing where everything you know that is just happening throughout the episode as a second as a secondary sort of consequence makes george look more insane yeah i think it's really clever too yep yeah and uh you know i always appreciate an episode I'm, I'm usually a big fan of the really simple sort of season two and three episodes but i do also at the same time enjoy a really complex episode where there's four sort of moving storylines and they kind of coalesce at the end i thought they did that really well in this episode and uh it's just a fantastic episode kramer's on fire in this episode i love him being the cinema uh, the theater the theater the theater <laughs> this is a family uh, theater yeah yeah you know him him sort of inhabiting that 
kind of like you know old old fashioned sort of character is always something I enjoy. Um, you know, Doctor Van Nostren, H.E. Pennypacker, these kind of like kooky old school guys. This theater guy, you know, it wasn't like a made up character, but the way he was acting and the way he was talking kind of reminded me of that. And I'm always a massive yeah. fan of that. Lloyd yeah. Braun was awesome. Uh, Jerry's glasses, fantastic. Oh yeah, iconic. Yeah. Really good physical comedy there. Yeah, and and Ruthie, you know, finally getting a speaking role was a nice little nice little bonus too. Yeah, it's good that they brought her in. For sure. Uh, any of the secondaries appear in your top 20? No, but special mention to Lloyd and Ruthie. What about you? Uh, yeah, same. None appear in my top 20, but uh, was happy to see Lloyd uh, and also, yeah, Ruthie get a bit of a speaking role. Indeed. But anyway, that was another episode of Binwa Bask, and it's our final episode for the year 2020. And my God, Stephen, for everyone, it has been a terrible year and... And I'm kind of glad to see the back end of uh, the back of this year, considering, you know, we've still been able to do the podcast remotely. And then, you know, recently you've come back and we've recorded, you know, in the studio, what with the exception of this week, uh, you know, besides all the bad stuff that's happened, I'm glad we've uh, kept the podcast going for the year. Yeah, no, it's been really good. It's been uh, one of the few things that have sort of kept me uh, and you and, uh, you know, probably hopefully other people as well who listen are sane in some way. So, uh, yeah, if you have been listening, uh, if you have given us feedback, if you've gotten in touch, you know, even if you've just enjoyed our episodes but haven't contacted us, thank you. We have been doing this for nearly four years and uh, it's still as fun as ever. And uh, we only do it because we enjoy doing it. And uh, you know, if you enjoy what we do, that's a bonus. So uh, happy Festivus. Yep, happy Festivus. And, uh, yeah, let us know what you're doing for Festivus or your Christmas or Hanukkah, whatever you're celebrating. Bidwabask podcast at gmail.com and also on social media at B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C. You can support us financially on PayPal for one-off payments and Patreon for a very low monthly subscription where you get bonus content and this episode earlier than everyone else. And uh, yeah, big thanks to our current Patreon subs, uh, which I forgot to mention at the start of the episode, Aholi, Nikia, Jeff, Dan, and Neil. Thank you very much for your patronage and you get all that bonus stuff. And uh, yeah, echoing what you said, Steve, yeah, it's been fantastic like getting emails from our fans for the last year and uh, yeah I, I know it's been really hard and he's hoping that 2021 is much better and yeah hopefully we can move on from this once things get sorted and uh, we can enjoy the last few months of uh, this podcast yeah and uh, you know if the first bit of 2021 isn't much better than this whole year we can it and we'll still uh, enjoy yep. doing it so uh, yep. that's not going to change so again happy Festivus uh, hopefully you win your feats of strength hopefully you get to air many a grievance and uh, you know hopefully you acquire a really really spectacular aluminium pole and stick it family room. I hope so too and air those grievances and fight your father <laughs> or your significant other or relative whichever is best for you. But next week Steve we uh, are doing a bonus episode uh, because so many actors and actresses from Seinfeld have passed away in the last 12 months we felt like maybe we should do like a special in memoriam episode so we should go look back and see who passed away in 2020 who was on the show and we can talk about their career a little bit and uh, you know we can reminisce about their character that they played. Yeah speaking of 2020 being a pile of shit next week's episode will uh only prove that uh but it will be nice to talk about you know all the all the unfortunate passings uh, of seinfeld alumni through the year and, yeah uh, on them you know as fans of the show and fans of their work as well yeah we can celebrate their work and what they've done exactly uh, until then i'm steven i'm ivan and uh we'll catch you all in 2021 and uh next week for our special in memoriam episode take care indeed take care see you in the new year all the best <laughs>